following teaching is brought to you by Calvary Bible Church in Burbank, California. We trust that this recording will be a benefit to you and will be a challenge to your Christian faith and walk. For more information about Calvary Bible Church, see our website at calvarybiblechurch.org or call us at 818-556-4840. Good morning, everyone. Just still want to reiterate what Tim said, you know, we gather together this morning uh, for him, not for us, to celebrate Christ and what he has done, not anything that we have done. And again, we, we are to do that every day, right? That should be our focus every day, especially today, especially today. Uh, this has been uh, one of the ways that, uh, that we are doing this. We're encouraging one another this month. Um, through the year, we've been talking about very spiritual disciplines. This month, we've been focused on prayer, corporate prayer in particular. Kempis introduced it last week, and and he challenged us to be a God-dependent church. If you remember, he challenged us to be a church that is serious about prayer, that is devoted to prayer, that is relentless in prayer, that is selfless in prayer. And one of the things that he had mentioned uh, for our focus in order to apply that together in corporate prayer is we have uh, the last Sunday of the month, uh, stay and pray. We're gathered together for a meal after second service and then pray with one another. And just to remind you, let you know, each and every Wednesday, it's a time for a corporate prayer here at 7 o'clock. Um, you can gather with fellow saints to pray for one another in the body. We had a wonderful time this week as part of our Passion Week praying together. And just want to remind you that and also let you know as one of the encouragements to this month in focusing on prayer. We have a book in the bookstore called The God Who Hears. Uh, it will really challenge you in your life of prayer. If you remember, too, from Kempis' message last week that uh, he gave us, toward the end of his message, the, the supreme example of the most faithful and committed prayer warrior that has ever lived, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I appreciated how at the end of his message he said, May we be a God-dependent church that follows a God-dependent Savior. Indeed, all through the Gospels we see Jesus praying, don't we? It's referred to numerous times. Mark 1, 35 says, In the early morning, while it was still dark, Jesus arose and went out and departed to a lonely place and was praying there. Or Mark 6, 46 notes that after he had sent the crowd away for the day, Jesus departed to the mountain to pray. Or before selecting the twelve disciples in Luke six twelve, Jesus, it says... He spent the whole night in prayer to God. Luke 3.21, he was praying after his baptism. Luke 9.29, he was praying before the transfiguration. Matthew 9.13, he was praying for the children who were being brought to him. All through his ministry, many, many more passages that talk about Jesus and his commitment to prayer. In fact, Luke 5.16 says he himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. What I find interesting from those many, many passages that we see, particularly in the Gospels, that talk about Jesus and praying, there are relatively few that actually reveal to us what he prayed. You may find a phrase here and there, but but there's not that many. If you're thinking about the Lord's Prayer, remember that that prayer in Matthew 6, Luke 11, was offered to the disciples as a model of prayer, as instruction for us, but that it was not something he was actually praying in that moment. But there is one time when we hear what Jesus prayed. There is one time where we are given the privilege to listen in, if you will. And we find that prayer in John 17. It is one that 
Jim read the first part of earlier. It's a prayer that many refer to as the high priestly prayer. And I want to turn our attention this morning to the first five verses of that particular prayer, not only because this is the month of prayer here at Calvary, but also because today, being Resurrection Sunday, this prayer is significant because this prayer took place just a few days before his resurrection. In fact, it took place on the eve of his crucifixion. And indeed, it is a precious prayer. The great Scottish reformer John Knox held this prayer so dear that he asked that it be read to him while on his deathbed. These words of Jesus were among the last words that he heard before he left this world. And it is such a precious prayer, and I think one for him, because in it we are given a glimpse into the heart of our Savior, just as the cross looms before him. So please turn, if you have not yet, to John chapter 17, and stand as I read these first five verses again in honor of the Lord's word. John 17, verse 1, says, Jesus spoke these things, and lifting his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. O Lord, open our eyes now to understand these words. Give us insight by your Spirit to know what Christ has said here and and how to apply your precious word to our own lives. We pray in the name of our risen Lord. Amen. Thank you. Now, before looking into the specifics of what Jesus prayed here, we first need to understand the, 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 what prompted this prayer. Why is it that he prayed at this moment and prayed these words in particular? What is it that came about? What is it that prompted these things? The first phrase there in verse 1, which says, These things Jesus spoke, and then lifting his eyes to heaven, spoke to the Father. But this, this tells us that his prayer came following a discourse. A discourse that he had been having with his disciples, a discourse which began back in the upper room in John chapter 13. After Judas left to carry out his betrayal, Jesus, being very much aware that his departure was coming soon and had come, he turns his attention to the remaining 11. He wants to strengthen and encourage them for the difficult days ahead. And so in John 14, he tells them, let not your heart be troubled. To believe also in God and believe, believe in God and believe also in me. Then he tells them that he must leave. But when he leaves, he will not abandon them. For he will send the Holy Spirit who would be their comforter, their helper, who would come alongside them. In John 15, he encouraged the disciples as he described himself as the vine, the true vine, and calling them to abide in him so that they would bear much fruit. He then warns the disciples that persecution is sure to come. But again, tells them the Holy Spirit would be with them, that he would guide them and direct them. And then towards the end of John chapter 16, he again reiterates his departure to the Father was coming. And he ends with these words in John sixteen thirty three: These things I have spoken to you, that in, may, in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. But take courage, I have overcome the world. And it is as those last words of, of triumph 
come from Jesus' lips. It is then that he lifts his eyes towards heaven and says, Father, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. You see, he's, he's told the disciples what they needed to hear. He's given them words of instruction and encouragement in these final hours that he had with them. And then he says, now it is time. The hour has come. And he's not speaking of the next 60 minutes. He's talking about here a, a specific period of time. That the period of time has come. The period of time which has been ordained from before creation, as 1 Peter 1.20 tells us. The period of time that was planned and predetermined by God, Peter tells us in Acts 2.23. Jesus' words of encouragement to the disciples have ended. The upper room is, is now behind him. Gethsemane is before him. His public ministry has come to an end. The betrayer is on the way to the chief priest to disclose where they can find Jesus vulnerable. So the events have been set in motion. The events for which the very purpose that the Son of God came. And so with the disciples present, as Jesus stands in the shadow of the cross, he turns his attention to the Father. And what is it that is foremost on his heart in that moment? What is it that he desires more than anything else? What is it that drives him triumphantly to the cross? Remember, he says, I have overcome the world. What is it that motivated him? Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. Here as Jesus stands, he's at the precipice of the ultimate event in redemptive history. He gives only one petition in these first five verses, a petition that he repeats twice. Father, glorify your son that your son may glorify you. That word glorify carries the idea of of to praise, to, to honor, to extol. It also has the idea of to clothe in splendor or majesty. And so we see here in these last hours that Jesus has on the earth, that it was his desire that his majesty be put on display, that he experienced the honor and the exaltation that he had before the incarnation. And some might think, well, that request sounds a little bit self-serving. Father, glorify me. But did you catch what was the motive behind that request? Why did he say glorify me? So that the Son May glorify you. I glorified you on earth, he says, and now glorified me together with you. You see what was his motivation? Do you see what drove him? What his passion was? It's for God's glory. That was his greatest passion. Christ wanted to be glorified so that the Father would be brought glory through that. As Hebrews 1 2 tells us, he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of. Of God's nature. 2 Corinthians 4 6 says, The glory of God is seen in the face of Christ. So that as Christ is glorified, the Father is glorified. As Christ is exalted, the Father is exalted. As Christ's majesty is put on display, so too is the Father's. And so Jesus' request here for glory has as its foundation a longing for God to be glorified. Back in John 12 27. Before the upper room took place, Jesus had said that his hour has come. And then he said right after that, my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. It was the passion of his heart. Even in the light of certain suffering 
and agony, that he, he knew what was coming. Nothing was a shock to him. He knew what he was about to go through. But even in the midst of that and knowing that he is driven by one desire, he's inspired by one passion, and that is that God would be glorified through him. Beloved, we have to stop and ask ourselves, I need to ask you, is that your passion? Could you say that God's glory is what you live for? We so often talk about this, that the chief end of man is what? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever? We know that's why we've been created. We know that that is the purpose of our existence. But is that truly reflected in your life? In the desires of your heart? In what motivates you to do what you do? How different would our lives be if we had the same driving passion as Christ? That God's glory would be what we live for. Well, some would say, well, of course. Of course Jesus would live to glorify God. He is the Son of God. Of course it would be natural and easy for Him. But we must remember one thing. He is not only the Son of God, He is also the Son of Man. What he had to do was not easy. It was not as if he was thinking, yes, I'm about to be tortured and, and mocked and unjustly murdered. I'm about to bear the sins of the elect and face the full fury of the wrath of the Father against sin. And yes, my communion in that moment will be severed from the Father. But you know what? It's no big deal. I'm God. It doesn't matter. Bring it on. That was not his attitude. Remember, as he reflected on this hour, I just read from John 12, 27, he said, my, my heart is troubled. Or in the garden, he tells his disciples in Matthew 26, 38, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. In his prayer to the Father in the garden, he says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. So, beloved, do, do not take lightly Jesus' commitment to God's glory. Do not dismiss that his deity meant that it was a simple thing for him to do. He was also a man. And as a man, he, he shows us by his example that the life worth living is a life that is sold out and committed to God's glory no matter what. Amen? Again, let me ask you, are you sold out for God's glory no matter what? Let us look to Jesus and his example to us. That by the power of the Holy Spirit, he was strengthened and encouraged to do just that, even as he faced the most difficult act that anyone has faced ever or will face. Looking back to Christ's petition to be glorified, it's important to remember the, the context here. Again, to understand what was about to take place. The Last Supper is over. Judas has left. Jesus is on his way to the Garden of Gethsemane. And what comes next, beloved? Right? The soldiers come. He's taken before Pilate. And eventually, he's condemned to death on a cross. Jesus gives this prayer on the way to the cross. And so what Christ is praying here is that he would be glorified by the Father through the cross. That as he's speaking here, as he's praying, that he's saying, Father, and what's about to take place in my death and burial and resurrection, put on display my glory so that all would see your glory. But the question is, how could Christ get glory through such a death, a death on the cross? Again, as I mentioned on 
Friday night at the Good Friday service. How could His Majesty be seen in such a brutal instrument of shame and torture and death? Something D.A. Carson called the hideous profanity of Golgotha. You know, it would be like saying, Lord, glorify me through the knife of the guillotine. Glorify me through the hangman's noose. Bring yourself glory through me in the electric chair. I mean, none of those have an image of glory, do they? When you mention those instruments of death, does, does glory and majesty come to your mind? Neither would it be in speaking of being glorified through the cross. I mean, we, we would expect Jesus' glory to come in the form of a golden crown, would we not? But instead, he's given a crown of thorns. We would expect his glory to come as he's raised up upon the throne as king and exalted. But instead, he is raised up upon a cross and nailed to it. We'd expect his glory to come as he is clothed in fine kingly apparel. But instead, what clothing did he wear as he hung upon the cross? He wore his own blood. We'd expect Christ's glory to come in the cry of the crowd saying, Honor the King! Exalt the King! But what is it that the crowds cried out? Crucify Him! He's not our King. Indeed, how could the cross exalt Jesus Christ? How could the Father be honored through the humiliating death of His Son on the Roman instrument of torture and death? How could God receive glory in what the Jews saw as a curse to be hung on a tree? How could Jesus be glorified through the cross? Well, we find the answer to that in verses 2 through 5 of Jesus' prayer, where Jesus here reveals two ways that he is glorified through the cross. The first is found in verses 2 and 3. That is that through the cross, he grants eternal life. And the second is found in verses 4 and 5, through his complete obedience in going to the cross. Look again at verse 1. Jesus prays, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Here we see the first way that Christ's glory is seen at the cross is that through the cross, Jesus gives eternal life. Notice verse 2, he begins with even as, which tells us what follows is the basis of his petition to be glorified. And that basis comes from the fact that God the Father has given him authority over all mankind. And here in the context, specifically that authority is the authority to bestow eternal life, to give life. Verses 2 and 3, we see both the source and the nature of that eternal life. Notice first the source in verse 2. Jesus says, He is the one who gives eternal life. He is the source of it. He is the one who grants it. It's been a major theme all throughout John's Gospel. John 1.4 says that in Jesus is or was life. In John 10.10 says from Jesus Himself, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Or John 11.25, I am the resurrection and the life. Or John 6.35, I am the bread of life. Or John says in his letter in 1 John 5.12, He who has the Son has life. You know John 14.6, Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. We see from this a very important truth. Eternal life cannot be achieved. 
Eternal life cannot be earned or acquired. It must be given. And it is given by the only one who possesses it. It is given by the only one who has authority to give it. Again, just as Jesus said in verse 2, He's been given all authority. That authority is to grant eternal life, but also He's been given authority to carry out judgment. Peter mentions it in Acts 10, 43 or 42, and Paul says it in 2 Timothy 4, 1, that Jesus is the judge of the living and the dead. John 5, 27, Jesus says that He has been given the authority to execute judgment. And we have to remember these things. For so often, Jesus, at this time of year, he's presented as this helpless victim of a government conspiracy that he was unable to stop, that he was just this good man who'd come in the world, he's trying to make a difference, but then he's tragically martyred for his beliefs. But beloved, that cannot be further from the truth, could it? Jesus went to the cross in control and with resolve. You remember what happened when the soldiers arrived? Judas came, he was, he was in front of a bunch of soldiers, they came to take Jesus and ask him if, if he was the one Jesus says I am. Do you remember what happened to the soldiers? Fell down. Jesus could, with but a word, eliminate all threats. He could have walked away that night out of the garden. But he chose not to. Remember, he said, I have overcome the world. Father, glorify your son that your son may glorify you. And so because of Christ... The cross, that, that, that instrument of death, actually becomes a means of life. For on the cross, Jesus, he forged a path to forgiveness. On the cross, he, he forged a path to be made right before God, to be justified. He, he forged a way, he made a way to be cleansed of sin. And so rather than the cross being a symbol of shame, it is a symbol of Christ's glory because through it, he has secured eternal life. For all who believe. Amen. Looking back at Jesus' prayer in John 17, we find not only there the the source of eternal life, which is in Christ, but also the nature of eternal life. We see this in verse 3, where Jesus says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Some scholars think that because Jesus used the third person here, that John inserted this statement sometime later that Jesus did not speak these words. Others think that Jesus did speak these words, but they were more of a parenthetical thought, an aside, if you will. But actually, verse 3 flows directly from verse 2. There's a progression of thought here. For Jesus, recognizing the listening ears of the disciples around him as well as ours, he wants us to understand that not only is he the source of eternal life, but also that in knowing him, that is the essence of of eternal life. Notice Jesus says, this is eternal life. Not this is how you get eternal life. Not that this will be eternal life. Not that this is what eternal life is like. Jesus says, this is eternal life. To know God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And in these words we find another critical truth. One that cannot be too overemphasized because you know so many today they disconnect jesus from eternal life they see eternal life as in terms of time living forever or they see eternal life in terms of a place heaven or they see eternal life in terms of a deliverance not going to hell and while it includes those things at its very essence eternal life is to have an intimate knowledge or relational knowledge with god 
Again, quoting theologian D.A. Carson, he says, Eternal life is not so much everlasting life as it is a personal knowledge of the everlasting one. That's why salvation is not simply some transaction, a a contractual obligation that that you agree to, to keep certain rules, perform certain religious activities, to do certain spiritual activities, commit to a certain way of living, and you present that contract before Peter, and he has to let you in. That's not how it works. Friends, eternal life is a relationship. And entrance to that relationship begins by understanding that we have caused a separation in that relationship. That by our sin, we have formed a breach in that relationship. A breach that can only be repaired by confessing your sin to Jesus Christ and receiving His forgiveness. A forgiveness that He can offer and does offer through His death on the cross. The Bible says that your sin is an affront to God. That it is personal. It is egregious. That it has made God your enemy. And so that's why eternal life is not obtained. It's not given by Christ when we perform certain duties. But when we show a desire to turn from that sin and put our trust in Him. Eternal life is given not when we promise to go to church, obey the Ten Commandments. Kind of keep our nose clean, if you will. But it is granted when we give Jesus our sole allegiance, when we turn from and desire to turn from all the pleasures and the experiences and enticements of this world and choose to love Christ with all our heart. When you understand what eternal life really is, as Jesus describes it here, when you understand this, that it's ongoing fellowship with God, that it's knowing Him, that it's loving Him with all your heart, that that is what will break you from a duty-based religion. That truth is what will release you from the shackles of following commands in order to make God happy or in trying to be right with God. That is what will open your eyes to the overwhelming, the magnificent, the, the unbelievable, infinite grace of God. It's when you understand that eternal life is to know Him. It'll make you realize that cultivating a relationship with Christ and that our obedience to Him out of love for Him is all that matters. That following Jesus is something we want to do, not something we have to do. And beloved, don't overlook this fact. Friends, don't overlook what Jesus says here. He says that this is eternal life, to know God and and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. You see, you can't divorce a relationship with God from a relationship with Jesus. You cannot know God without knowing Christ. You cannot have faith in God unless it is also a faith in Jesus Christ. They can't be separated. Jesus said in John fifteen twenty three to his disciples, he said, He who hates me hates my father also. You can't love God without loving his son. And if you reject Jesus, you're rejecting his father too. You can't say, I worship God, and then at the same time refuse to believe in Jesus or refuse to accept what His Father has said about Him in His Word. For God can only be known through the One whom He has sent, and no one else. Did you notice there in John 3, says, This is eternal life, that they would know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And then there's no other and after that. He didn't add anybody else to the list. It is just... Jesus, only through Him, the one He has sent. That is the only way to know the Father. 
There aren't additional prophets. There aren't additional religious figures. There aren't additional people who've had special visions that you need to follow and understand in order to know God. Only Jesus Christ. This is eternal life. To know God and the one whom he has sent. These aren't my words. Right? Jesus said himself, we quoted a moment ago, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. No other religion can save you. No other set of beliefs, no other faith, no other God. Jesus made a very narrow, very specific. You can only come to the Father through me. I'm the only one who can grant eternal life. I'm the only one who has paid for your sin. I'm the only one who can be your perfect substitute. And so because of these things, we can see the glory of Christ on the cross because of what he offers himself in your place. That he, because of what he's done, can offer you forgiveness. You can stand before God forgiven, made holy, cleansed of sin. It's on the cross where the glory of Christ is seen in his humility and what he was willing to suffer in order to bring that about. It's on the cross where the glory of Christ is on full display that by what he sacrificed, he's now able to grant eternal life. Oh, the glory of the cross that you would send your son for us. I gladly count my life as lost that I may know the glory of the cross. And not only is the glory of the cross, the glory of Christ seen at the cross through the fact that he has given us eternal life, but his glory is also seen at the cross by his complete obedience. Look again at verses 4 and 5. Jesus says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you had given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world began. Here in verse 5, we see his petition repeated to the Father to glorify him. And in that petition, notice that Jesus says that he glorified the Father upon the earth. And notice what it says or what he says, particularly about how he did that. How was it that he glorified the Father while on earth? Notice he says, having accomplished, having completed the work which you gave me to do. Jesus brought the Father glory on earth by obeying the Father completely in all things. In the original language here, Jesus begins with the first person pronoun I, and then he puts the second person pronoun you, referring to the Father, early in the sentence in order to make the point emphatic. I myself have glorified you. And again, we see in that, even in how he orders the words in his sentence, we see again his passion for God's glory. His delight, his desire, his longing to do the will of the Father. We see that all throughout John's gospel. Jesus said in John 4, 34, my food, my sustenance is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish, same word as in John 17 here, to accomplish, to complete his work. In John 5, 30, he says, I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And again, in John 6, 38, I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Or in John 8, 29, I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Jesus shows us that God is most honored, that he is most exalted, most glorified when his will is supreme in our lives. When out of love for him, we obey him. Jesus told the disciples in John 15, 8, 
By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. Who's the greatest example of one who bore much fruit? Jesus himself, right? He did all. Think about this. Everything the Father commanded to him to do. Completed his will perfectly. Scripture makes it clear that though Jesus was tempted in all things as we are, he was without sin. That he knew no sin. That there was no sin in him. That he obeyed perfectly his entire life. And what was his first act of obedience? To step into humanity. To become a man. Being made in the likeness of men and giving up the independent exercise of his divine attributes. And don't take for granted how incredible that act of obedience was. How humbling. When the Father instructed the Son to become man, how humbling for the Creator to become part of his creation. Unbelievable. How much of a step down was that? And yet Jesus did it to glorify the Father. Jesus came not in glory, but in shame, right? Taking the form of a bondservant, spent his first night in an animal's feeding trough, and then lived life accepting the cultural stigma of being raised as an illegitimate child. Pharisees brought this up later in John chapter 8. He was a son of immorality. Jesus accepted that because he followed the will of the Father. He submitted himself to earthly parents in accordance with God's command to honor father and mother. Luke 2 tells us that he went in submission to them. Think again, how profound is that? That the creator would submit himself to his creation. That was the father's will. Jesus withstood the onslaught of Satan himself throughout his ministry. Remember in the wilderness, right? Satan offered Jesus what appeared to be an easy out. Remember when he said, showed him all the kingdoms of the earth and he said, I'll give this all to you. You can skip the pain, the suffering, the agony, the shame, all that's coming. You can skip all that just as one act. Fall down and worship me. You can have it all. Nobody's around. It's just you and me here. Jesus said, no, no, because he was committed to the will of the Father. He said, no, worship God alone. Get out of here. Satan left, by the way. And then think about all through the Gospels. We see Jesus undergo trial after trial, difficulty. And what comes with human weaknesses that Jesus experienced. And we don't see one instant, one example, one act where Jesus refused to follow the Father's commands. Not one. Never once did he disobey. Never once did he put his own will above the Father's. Jesus was so committed. Think about this. He was so committed to the Father's plan that he actually initiated the course of events that would lead him to the cross. Because remember, the Last Supper in the upper room. And he said, one of you is going to betray me. And he identifies him by offering that morsel. And then what did he tell Judas to do? What you plan to do, go do it. Again, Jesus could have taken Judas out right there. But instead, he sends him out to carry out the terrible mission of betrayal. Jesus sent him on that mission. Even in the garden, 
right, as he suffered the anguish, knowing what he was going to have to endure. And he said, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, remove it from me. But immediately following those words, was it, what is it that he said? Yet not as I will, but as you will. Again, Christ was committed to accomplish and did accomplish all that the father had given him to do. And that included going to the cross. It meant he had to go to the cross. That was part of the plan all along. And if he didn't, then the perfect life that he had lived up to that point would have been undone. For Jesus then would not have committed, carried out the single act for which he was sent to do. And which all the other acts pointed to and led to. And were used by the Father to bring him to that very moment where he would offer himself on a cross. The cross is the whole reason the Father sent the Son to be a ransom, to be our substitute, to pay for our sins. And if Jesus had refused that final obedience, everything would have been for naught. Think about that. If he had stopped short of the cross, what are we even doing here? If he had stopped short of the cross, we would have no hope. If he had stopped short of the cross, we would have nothing to live for. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. And there's nothing after that because there's no way for your sins to be atoned for. If Jesus had stopped short of that, everything would be undone. But praise Christ that he didn't refuse. That he fully, fully accomplished what he was given to do and embraced it. He said, I I always do what is pleasing to my Father. In fact, notice again, what he says in John 17, 4. Notice the verb tense here. Having accomplished the work which you, have, which you gave to me. It had not yet happened. The cross had not yet taken place. That was going to come a few hours later. But even though it had not yet happened, he was so resolved to do all that the Father had given him that he speaks of it as if it had already been done. I have overcome the world. And so Christ's petition to be glorified would find its answer in the cross. For it was on the cross that Jesus accomplished, that he fulfilled, that he completed everything the Father had given him to do. He completed a life of perfect perfect obedience, a life that culminated in the single greatest act in human history. Obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And if you remember... A little after three o'clock on Friday afternoon, as he hung upon the cross, Jesus cried out, it is finished. It is finished. And he wasn't just talking about there that he was going to die. He said right after that, into my hands, I commit into your hands, I commit my spirit. No, when he said it is finished, he meant it is finished. He had done everything that the father had given him to do. He had completed it. He had done it all. He had lived the life that the Father had called him to live all the way to the cross and through the cross. It reminds us that Jesus came with a purpose and dying on the cross was the culmination of that purpose. A purpose which Jesus knew about long before. A week earlier, just before they entered Jerusalem to the waves of palm branches and the cries of Hosanna, Jesus told his disciples in Mark 10, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him, and three days later he will rise again. So Jesus knew even before entering Jerusalem. But he knew even before that. 
about a year earlier in Matthew 16, 21. It tells us that Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. But Jesus knew even before that. He knew at the very beginning of his ministry. In John chapter 3, in verse 14, he said, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him would have eternal life. Jesus knew he was on a mission at 12 years old. Right? When his parents were looking for him, and they find him in the temple, and he says, Why are you looking for me? I'm here in my father's place. At Jesus' conception, the angel told Joseph in Matthew one twenty one that Mary would bear a son and that you would call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And so from the very moment the Holy Spirit came upon Mary, Jesus was on a direct path to the cross so that he would save mankind from their sin. But even before that, God's plan was known. 700 years earlier, in Isaiah 53, describes what the Messiah would go through. In Isaiah 53, 12, it says the Messiah will pour himself out to death, be numbered with the transgressors, and will bear the sin of many. But even before that, just after the fall, Genesis chapter 3, when God confronts the serpent and tells the serpent, a seed, uh, you will be at enmity with the woman, a seed, she will have a seed, and that seed, you will crush his heel, but he will crush your head and at that moment when the hammer and nail went through the heel of christ satan was crushed on that same cross but even before that the son of god knew the mission even before creation itself paul tells us in ephesians three ten that in the gospel the manifold wisdom of god might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities and the heavenlies. Listen to this. In accordance with the eternal purpose that he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord. Even before creation. 1 Peter 1.20 says that Jesus in his sacrifice was foreknown before the foundation of the world. So you see, Jesus' journey to the cross did not start as he began that walk down the Via Della Rosa. His journey did not begin at the Last Supper or on Palm Sunday or even at his birth. It began before his birth. It began before the first birth. From before the beginning of time, God had a plan. And that plan was to shoot the Son of God like an arrow into human history with one trajectory and one target. And that target was in the shape of a cross. And he hit it bullseye. Jesus was sent by the Father to reclaim His creation for His glory. To buy us back. And it was Christ's sole purpose to glorify the Father and to fulfill the Father's will by living a perfect life, being willing to give that life on the cross in order to grant eternal life. It was God's plan all along. And Jesus embraced it willingly with joy. Hebrews 12 tells us, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of God. And so as the Son glorified the Father in carrying out his will, the Father glorified the Son. For in the cross, 
we see the magnificent love of the Father that He would give His Son and the magnificent love of the Son for His Father that He would obey and His magnificent love for us that He would give that up, give up His life, sacrifice Himself to grant us eternal life. So on the third day, the Lord's Day, Resurrection Sunday, this day, today, we celebrate that resurrection from the dead because you know what that showed? That showed that the Father accepted the sacrifice of the Son. The Father answered His prayer. Because think, if there's no resurrection, what are then we to think about the cross? Was His sacrifice accepted? Did Jesus live the life God had called Him to? We would have no hope. But because of the resurrection, it shows us, yes, my Son, I've accepted your sacrifice. Now you are exalted to the glory that you had before the world began. The Father affirmed all that the Son had done through the resurrection. And the question for us today is, what does this mean to all of us? Well, frankly, it means nothing if you don't believe it. This gives you all these things we've talked about, what we've seen here in His Word, what Jesus has said. This gives you absolutely nothing if you do not know Him as your Savior and Lord. This profits you nothing. Having this knowledge profits you nothing if you have not confessed your sins to Jesus Christ and submitted to Him as Lord. Gets you nothing if you have not put your trust in Him, committed your life to Him. For Jesus did go on that cross to pay for sin, but He will not pay for your sin unless you believe. And you'll know that belief is genuine. You'll know it's real. You'll know your trust in Him is true if you see the same desire in your life that Christ had a passion for in His, to glorify God by doing His will. John 3.36 says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. And I appeal to you, do not take that verse lightly. If you have not committed your life to Christ if you've not recognized Him to be the greatest treasure in the universe, that, that He's worthy of your love, He's worthy of your allegiance, He's worthy of your confession, He is worthy of your obedience, He's worthy of your life. If you've not confessed to Christ that you are a sinner in need of His forgiveness, then you will not be welcomed into glory by those nail-pierced hands. Instead, those same hands will cast you into eternal judgment. Again, Jesus has been given authority to grant eternal life, or to judge into the second death. So come to Christ while He may be found now. Come to Christ while His offer of forgiveness stands. Come to Christ and He will wash you clean. Come to Christ and He will grant you peace. Come to Christ and know the love and contentment and the the peace that only He can give. Nothing else in this life can give you that. Only in the Son But friends, make a decision. Make a decision. Don't be passive in this. Make a decision that you're going to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, confess your sins to Him, or not. But make a decision today. Don't let another moment go by. You don't know what is going to take place. I had Someone was just telling me, uh, I think it was on Friday, they are telling me about a friend who had just died. He was on a ski lift going up to the top. The mountain, and just as he got off of the lift, he had a heart attack. 
He was in his early 50s. Don't wait. Make a decision. To my brothers and sisters, beloved of God, that he went through this to make a way for us. Let Jesus' prayer here in John 17 and and what he did following that prayer, let, let it stir your hearts to desire the same thing Jesus desired, the glory of God, to glorify God in Christ. Let what he did on the cross remind you that through it, he's given you eternal life. Have a relationship with him. Let what he did on the cross remind you of his life of complete obedience and that. That life has been applied to you in faith. Beloved, let us glorify Christ. Glorify Him by cultivating your love for Him. Glorify Him by communing with Him every day. Glorify Him by singing and declaring His praises. Glorify Him by obeying Him, by serving Him, by suffering for Him, by declaring Him to all around you. Glorify Him by giving Him your life. No matter what happens. No matter the circumstances. Jesus walked before us. To show us the path of joy, even in the midst of suffering. Let us follow His path, looking to our Savior as our example and our strength. Is He not worthy of all of this and more? Father, glorify Your Son among us, through us. May He be lifted up. Not just in the words that we speak, but in the lives that we live. Not just in our desire to pursue Him, but in actually doing it. Glorify Christ by granting us faith, great faith, to trust Him in all things, in all circumstances, no matter what you bring. Glorify your Son by we're helping us, enabling us to understand more and more what is meant by the cross and what that accomplished and what your son did on our behalf and in obedience to you. Glorify your son or through your people. So grateful that words are not available. They can't express or the, the depth of what Our gratitude should be, needs to be. We're so thankful for what you've given. We're so thankful for today that we can celebrate the resurrection of our dear Lord and Savior. We pray that you've been honored, you've been pleased, and that you would be pleased not just with today, what we do today, but what we do tomorrow as we await his return. In Christ's name, we pray, amen.